Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams, and today we're going back to Tuesday, the 13th of August, 1940. That was the day that a mysterious plane crash all but decapitated Australia's wartime leadership and set in train events that would bring down one Prime Minister while setting two men on paths that would lead to that top political job. On this day 80 years ago, Australia's morning newspapers were filled with stories of planes, fiery explosions, sudden violent death and wartime sacrifice. The Battle of Britain had been underway for over a month now, and England's RAF was engaged in an ever more desperate struggle against the Luftwaffe. If the Nazis won, if they achieved air superiority, invasion would follow. At the request of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, his Australian counterpart Robert Menzies was formulating his response to this war crisis and a United Australia Party Country Party Cabinet meeting had been called at Federal Parliament for the 13th of August. To get to Canberra from Melbourne, Australia's top wartime decision-makers were to fly aboard one of the RAAF's new Lockheed Hudson bombers. This plane took off from Essendon Airport at 9.30 that morning. Flying the aircraft into the clear, late winter skies was RAAF Flight Lieutenant Robert Hitchcock, who'd graduated from Point Cook Flying School in 1936. Robert's father, Bobby Hitchcock, was an aviation legend for having perished with Keith Anderson in controversial circumstances in 1929 when their plane Kookaburra crash-landed in the desert while looking for Charles Kingsford Smith and his lost aircraft, Southern Cross. On August 13, 1940, Flight Lieutenant Hitchcock's Hudson crew comprised Pilot Officer Richard Wisner, Radio Operator Corporal John Palmer and Aircraftman Charles Crosdale. The men who were their passengers could hardly have been more important to Australia's war effort. These were men of action, whose contributions to the nation's history were already immense and whose wisdom and experience were now vital to its future. James Fairbairn, 43, was Minister for Air and Civil Aviation, and he knew planes and he knew the skies. Born into a wealthy family, he had in 1915, at the age of 18, gone to England to train as a fighter pilot with the Royal Flying Corps. In February 1917, James Fairbairn was shot up and taken down by German fighter pilots. He survived a forced landing, the incineration of his plane and a bullet wound and after that was made a prisoner of war. Back in Australia after the armistice, James Fairbairn became a successful grazier in Victoria and in 1933 won the federal seat of Flinders. He remained a keen and lucky aviator, surviving another crash landing in 1932, flying around Australia in 1935 and the following year piloting his new de Havilland Dragonfly back home from England. In his role as Minister for the Air, James Fairbairn used this plane to carry out his duties, flying other politicians, including Prime Minister Robert Menzies, around the country, and in July 1940, flying himself around Australia to inspect RAAF bases. 
There's every chance on the 13th of August 1940 that he would have flown himself and his fellow politicians to Canberra from Melbourne, except for the fact that his Dragonfly had been requisitioned by the RAAF just five days earlier. So here he was, a passenger on the Hudson Bomber. Along with 46-year-old Geoffrey Street, Federal MP for Kerangamite and Minister for the Army. Like James Fairbairn, Geoffrey Street had been born into wealth, but had chosen to serve in World War I. After war was declared in 1914, he left university and was among the first to join the AIF, landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915. Slightly wounded that day, he was evacuated to Egypt and returned to Gallipoli a month later to see out the rest of the campaign. After that, three more years of fighting awaited him on the Western Front until he was put out of action by a gunshot wound to the wrist in September 1918. Like James Fairbairn, in peacetime he'd become a successful Victorian grazier before, at the urging of Robert Menzies, entering federal politics and winning the seat of Karangamite in 1934. He'd been made Minister of Defence in November 1938 until the portfolio was renamed in November the following year and he became Minister for the Army. The third member of Robert Menzies' cabinet aboard the Hudson that day was 62-year-old Sir Henry Gullett. Minister for Information and Vice President of the Executive Council, he'd been a frontline correspondent in the Great War. He'd seen action on the Western Front, where he also served as an ambulance driver, and he'd seen conflict in the Middle East, where his experiences later informed him as author of one volume of The Official History of Australia in the War 1914-1918. to After the war, he'd been Prime Minister Billy Hughes' pressman at the Treaty of Versailles, and in the early 1920s, been news editor of Keith Murdoch's Melbourne Herald newspaper. Henry Gullett was elected to Parliament in 1925 and, during the periods that the Conservatives were in power over the next 15 years, he held numerous cabinet positions as well as spending a stint as Deputy Leader in opposition. The other VIP aboard the Hudson Bomber was General Sir Brudenell White, the Chief of the General Staff. At 63 years old, he'd seen it all. He'd served in the Second Boer War, been a founding member of the Australian Army, supervised the deployment of the AIF in 1914, and the following year been Chief of Staff to Major General Sir William Bridges and William Birdwood at Gallipoli. There, after William Birdwood left, Brudenell White's greatest achievement had been masterminding the silent evacuation of Gallipoli, which had saved countless lives. After that, once again under William Birdwood, he'd run ANZAC operations on the Western Front. By the 1930s, General Sir Brudenell White had retired to become a grazier until he was recalled by Prime Minister Menzies to be Chief of the General Staff in March 1940. On the Hudson flight, these four VIPs were accompanied by two staffers. There was Lieutenant Colonel Francis Thornwaite, aged 50, who'd served four years in the Great War at Gallipoli in Egypt and on the Western Front, and who was now liaison officer between the Army and the Defence Secretariat. The youngest man aboard was 30-year-old Richard Elford, James Fairbairn's secretary, who caught the Hudson flight because he'd spent an extra day in Melbourne so he and his wife could celebrate their first wedding anniversary. Just 90 minutes after taking off from Essendon Airport, the Hudson was approaching Canberra, the weather over the federal capital still clear with only a slight breeze blowing. 
The plane circled the aerodrome, apparently to ensure it was clear for landing, before beginning its final approach, lowering its flaps and landing gear, cutting the engines and coming into a gliding descent. Then, suddenly, the Hudson dipped a wing and turned away. A garage proprietor working at Queenbian would tell the Canberra Times the Hudson had flown low over him, wings tilted, and his assistant had remarked that he thought the pilot was taking a risk pulling stunts so close to the ground. A man working his property about a mile away told the same newspaper that he saw the plane losing speed when it was very low and then the pilot switched the engines back on and one backfired with flames shooting out. Another witness told Sydney's The Sun newspaper, quote, Suddenly, just as it was above the last of the low hills on the Queanbeyan border of the aerodrome, the machine suddenly made a turn to the right and flew away from the aerodrome. At the time, it appeared to be between three and 400 feet above the hills. This sudden turn was completely abnormal and there appeared to be no reason why it should have been made. Hardly had the turn been completed when the nose of the machine dipped and we were horrified to see it spin with terrific force down behind a hill. As the Hudson went down, Flight Officer Robert Hitchcock, or whoever was at the controls, righted the plane for a pancake crash landing into a small clearing at the top of a hill. The Canberra Times reported, it appeared as though the pilot had made a last desperate effort to bring the plane down in the only cleared space of any size for several miles around. But as it came in, the Hudson hit a log, which destroyed the cockpit and undercarriage, puncturing the fuel lines and fuel tanks. In a second, the plane went up in a ball of flame, sending a huge plume of black smoke into the winter sky. Witnesses rushed to the crash site, as did an emergency squad from the Canberra RAAF squadron. By the time they arrived, the plane was burning so ferociously it wasn't possible to get close to the wreckage, or possible that anyone still in the aircraft had survived. Canberra's fire brigade arrived and sprayed the wreck with fire extinguishers. When the blaze was out, the full extent of the catastrophe began to be understood. As Sydney's The Sun reported, quote, a terrible sight confronted the rescuers. The entire undercarriage, wings and structural supports of the plane had been ripped away and were a smouldering mess, in which could be seen the charred bodies of those on board. The rudder and tail, pointing in the air at an angle of 45 degrees, were all that was left intact of the plane. A charred tree was in the middle of the wreckage. Prime Minister Menzies' private secretary, Minister for the Army Geoffrey Street's private secretary and Minister for the Air James Fairburn's assistant private secretary drove to the site to try to identify the bodies. It was impossible right there and then. And positively IDing the bodies of the 10 men aboard and determining where on the plane they had been when they died would prove frustrating, laborious, time-consuming and ultimately controversial. Once Prime Minister Menzies was told what had happened, he, the Postmaster General, the Minister for Supply and the Treasurer sped by car to the scene of the crash. Prime Minister Menzies returned shaken and, head in hands, he made an initial statement to confirm the deaths, during which he was so emotional at times he was barely able to continue. He said, quote, It is a most grievous personal loss. Every man was doing an important war service. Each of my three cabinet colleagues was a man of character and intense loyalty, and their loss just doesn't bear thinking about. 
Mercifully, the coronial inquest would conclude all 10 men had died not in the inferno, but before that, from fractured skulls sustained in the crash. But what had happened to the Hudson? Why had it crashed? The Sun newspaper said, quote, The turn away from the aerodrome which preceded the crash has mystified those who witnessed it. This manoeuvre appeared to be completely unnecessary as the machine was gliding normally, and, even if an engine had failed, the machine had sufficient altitude to have cleared the boundary fence and landed on the aerodrome. An official inquiry was held quickly, and it put the blame on the pilot, Flight Officer Robert Hitchcock, who it believed had stalled the Hudson, which was known to have such problems at very low airspeeds. This was disputed by a senior RAAF training official who defended Hitchcock's skill and experience, particularly as he'd been trying to execute a simple landing in near-perfect conditions. In his 1991 RAAF official history, The Third Brother, The Royal Australian Air Force, 1921-1939, author Chris Coltard-Clark devotes two pages to Hitchcock's terrible record, both as a trainee and as a pilot. He argues that Flight Officer Hitchcock only held on to his RAAF rank and position because of who his father had been and because of his political connections. Even so... Could he have misjudged this badly? In his 2013 book, Air Disaster Canberra, The Plane Crash That Destroyed a Government, author Andrew Tink argues that Hitchcock was in the moments leading up to the crash, sharing the Hudson's dual controls with Air Minister James Fairburn. Remember, James Fairburn was a veteran pilot who'd earlier that year been flying Menzies and other ministers around in his Dragonfly, the Dragonfly he very likely would have been flying had the RAAF not requisitioned it. In his book, Andrew Tink explains how James Fairburn had recently told an Adelaide trade school headmaster that he wanted very badly to fly the new Lockheed Hudson, practice landings and solve for himself the stalling issue. Air Disaster Canberra contains a convincing recreation of what might have happened, with James Fairburn setting the Hudson on course for disaster and Robert Hitchcock at the last moment trying to save the plane with that ill-fated pancake hilltop landing. Another historian, Cameron Hazelhurst, whose 2013 book, Ten Journeys to Cameron's Farm, An Australian Tragedy, retraces the lives of the ten men who'd been lost, doesn't believe James Fairburn was flying, but thinks he may have been in the cockpit and distracted Robert Hitchcock. This great uncertainty arose from the condition of the bodies and conflicting reports as to where they'd been found in the wreckage. If there had been three dead men in the cockpit, another theory has it, then it might have been the result of Flight Officer Hitchcock coming in too low and veteran pilot James Fairburn rushing forward to offer advice and tell him to pull up. It's not often doing a history podcast that you get late-breaking news, but right as I was editing this episode on the 12th of August, there was a new article in The Australian in which Michael Woolridge, former Federal MP, said he was told by Sir Harry White, former parliamentary librarian, that he'd been with Prime Minister Menzies' private secretary, Norman Tritton, when he'd come back from the crash site, and that Norman Tritton had told him he'd identified James Fairburn's body still strapped into the pilot seat. 
It's Michael Woolridge's contention in the article that this was kept from the Australian public to avoid a scandal and kept from the families to avoid inflicting further emotional distress. However the Hudson crashed, one thing is certain. Robert Menzies had lost not just close friends, but his closest political allies, and that set off a chain reaction that was to reshape Australian political history. A month after the Hudson crashed, Prime Minister Menzies went to an election and suffered an eight-seat swing. The UAP Country Party was only able to form a minority government with the support of two independents, including Arthur Coles, who'd won the seat of Henty that had been held by crash victim Sir Henry Gullett. Country Party MP Arthur Fadden, who'd avoided death by turning down a seat on the Hudson because cancelling his train ticket would have been too bothersome, then took over as Minister for Air and Minister for Civil Aviation. By early 1941, Arthur Fadden was acting Prime Minister when Robert Menzies went to England for four months. After Prime Minister Menzies returned, he, in August 1941, lost the support of his party and resigned, replaced by Arthur Fadden. In turn, Arthur Fadden's stint as Prime Minister lasted just 40 days until he was brought down by those federal independents switching their support to Labour leader John Curtin, which led to him being installed as Prime Minister, a role he'd carry out almost until the end of the war. The Hudson crash also led to an important milestone in the career of another future Prime Minister. Harold Holt, who'd been a minister without portfolio under Robert Menzies and who'd taken leave to join the army in May 1940. At that time, Harold Holt was on track to serve as a gunner in the Middle East. Then, the Hudson crash, after which he was recalled by Prime Minister Menzies, campaigned for re-election, won and was made Minister for Labour and National Service in late October 1940. Just over a quarter of a century later, Harold Holt would replace Robert Menzies as Prime Minister, only to then himself die in circumstances as mysterious as the plane crash that occurred in Canberra 80 years ago today. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.